Well, so welcome back, Sandra Morgan, the Executive Director for the Global Center for Women and Justice. Always great to have you. We are, I think we're doing really good work here, and I'm really proud of that. And uh, welcome for the first time today, uh, the presiding judge of the Juvenile Court, the Honorable Maria D. Hernandez. So thank you for coming all the way down and being with us today. Thank you for having me. And I'm really glad to be back, Kimberly. And I just want to thank you for creating this platform for communicating um, these issues right here in our own backyard. Well, like I said, I think we're doing important work here. And, you know, let's see where this takes us in terms of informing the community and uh, really understanding the issues. So I'm really excited to have you here, uh, Judge Maria Hernandez. Um, Tell us a little bit about what you do. Well, what I do is I am the presiding judge of our juvenile court here in Orange County. Um, At juvenile court here, we have both dependency children as well as delinquency children in our system. So they are uh, system-involved children. They come from a variety of backgrounds. Um, Clearly, my dependency children are those who have been neglected and abused. Um, Some have been removed from custodial care of their parents, but there's been neglect or abuse. Uh, My delinquency children, which also fall under the juvenile jurisdiction, are children who have committed criminal allegations and become wards of our court pursuant to those allegations. Um, Here in Orange County, at any time, I probably have about 5,000 children under the court's jurisdiction, either dependent or delinquent children. From my perspective, that child is one and the same child, and it's something that's really important that folks understand um, we do a lot of labeling um, with our with our youth, whether it be adolescent or small children. So um, education is a really strong piece of information that I really like to work on as far as educating folks on what is it what does it mean to be system involved? That number seems shockingly big. Are you surprised by that number too, or should I be surprised or not surprised? Let, help me tease that out a bit. I, I just want to say that as you listen, to the judge talk about this, she always uses the possessive my children. And so this is um, this is a huge part of the work that she's doing with these kids who tend to be very vulnerable and at risk for some of the same issues you and I have been talking about during National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month. And one of the reasons I love working with someone who who um, owns our kids, over 5,000 of them, is that is where we're going to be able to find points of entry for prevention, not only the, the um, recovery rest- restoration process, but we have to do a much better job of prevention. And tell us um, a little bit, Judge, about how you are doing that in Orange County and the kind of multidisciplinary teams that you've built. Uh, Sure. In order for us to be successful for our children and families, whether that's here in Orange County or anywhere in the country, we have to look at it from an early identification and prevention standpoint. And to be able to do that, we have to do it collectively or collaboratively. Orange County is very progressive as far as its ability to collaborate with different what we call stakeholders or justice partners. Uh, I work very closely with not only probation, social services, our health care agency, Department of Education, uh, our community-based and faith-based organizations, because what people are finally realizing um, 
with education, which is huge that we're here at UCI because I work very closely in partnering with some of the professors right here on the UCI campus with the research that they do to show evidence-based practices, what research shows what works, what type of uh, prevention measures or what type of evidence-based practices can we implement to uh, reduce recidivism or to be able to provide these children who are our most vulnerable at-risk youth with what they need when they need it. So we don't want to miss that important point that you're a former anteater, right? <laughs> I'm an absolute anteater, uh, class of 1986. <laughs> Um, I'd like to say the trailer that we're in right now was here when I was here in the <laughs> 80s. So some things don't change, but a lot of things have really changed and remarkably changed in a really positive way. Um, so I feel really fortunate to be able to come back home to UCI and see the progressive work in many of the schools here on the on the campus, but specifically my school, the School of Social Ecology, uh, the professors that I've been working with very closely are Dr. Elizabeth Kaufman and Dr. Jody Quas, who are both very intimately um, involved with adolescent and our young children in looking at preventative measures, um, giving me the actual research that will help myself as well as my other bench officers make the right decisions about how to work with these children and these families so that we have better outcomes. Okay, so let's let's take one or two stories. You don't I mean obviously you don't need to tell us any personal stuff that doesn't need to be disclosed, but help the listener understand how somebody in what we would think of as a functioning family can fall into the human trafficking realm uh, so we can start to see some of those early warning signs ourselves. Oh, so so quickly. Um, you know, one of the big myths, and I'm sure Dr. Morgan's covered this a lot, is folks think, oh, human trafficking is an international issue only. And um, the fact that it's domestic here in the United States, not here in my county and not in my city, and the fact that, you know, we're here in Irvine. Every city in our county here in Orange County has issues with human trafficking. Um, so we are working very closely with our human trafficking task force. Um, so when you're talking about law enforcement, when you're talking about health care, social services, collectively, so many people on that same mission to identify those vulnerable youth from the families you're talking about, families who might be at a poverty level so that they are working two and three jobs, parents just trying to get by who are not in the home, or substance abuse may be an issue at home, or domestic violence where the child feels the need to get away like any other normal human being, but a child whose brain isn't developed. How do they deal and cope with this? Well, I'm going to go find out. I'm going to find somebody who will love me, somebody who will accept me, or find a better way of living. And then unfortunately, they run something as simple as our runaways who are running from something, some family issue, like I said, whether it's mental health, substance abuse, uh, domestic violence, they hit the street and our research will tell us within 48 hours, they are very likely to be approached if not taken up by a pimp on the street. So our, our youth become very vulnerable very quickly, even youth that you wouldn't imagine. So you think, well, that's just an Orange County child. They're fine. So it does beg the questions when you say hit the street. Are we speaking of a particular geographic area or is this really something that, you know, is like everywhere in Orange County? Unfortunately, it is everywhere. You will see hubs 
Uh, you know, there are areas that are known where our traffickers will bring. Uh, often we see out-of-county children coming in. Um, but I know that my children are somewhere. If they're not here in Orange County being victimized, they're somewhere else in the state, which often concerns me greatly is where are my kids? What's happening with my kids? Is there somebody on the other end looking for them? And we often, when we're talking about this issue, we use the feminine she and this little girl. But um, uh, the judge came from boys' court to the bench to be our presiding juvenile justice. And I just want to raise that um, awareness level in our county that this happens with boys and there are ways for us to begin to recognize that better. There are, and and Dr. Morgan, that's a good point. That was my love, was I created um, and started a boys' court program about six years ago here uh, for our foster care youth. Um, they're long-term foster care boys, ranging from 13 to 18, and it's really developed into a very robust program. And in fact, we've now created a teen collaborative joining the girls and the boys together. Um, at what I tabbed were my highest risk, high needs children in the system. And these are boys who are at risk for trafficking just like the girls. They have the same issues. They are runaways. But there's an extra layer. The the machismo, I'm a boy, I can't tell. I mean, I, I think I'll defer to Dr. Morgan on this in the research, but you know, girls are very unlikely to reveal this is my pimp or my trafficker. Um, and especially when you talk about sexual assault or sexual abuse, those are not topics that, whether it's an adult or a child, want to speak to. Well, you add an extra layer of a young boy, an adolescent, and you want to ask him about, are you being perpetrated on? Is somebody victimizing you sexually? I mean, common sense tells us those are not topics Mm -hmm. that any child wants to talk about. But there is the stereotypical issue with boys that, I'm not going to show a sign of weakness and say somebody has sexually abused me. I mean, that runs the gamut when we talk about our boys who are sexually abused. I think the numbers are much higher, but they're just not revealed because of that, because of the lack of disclosure by by the males. But I can tell you, we've had a couple boys in my boys' court program that um, were identified and working with. Uh, and it's very difficult. These are some of the most complex youth that I have ever dealt with. Um, they touch your heartstrings in a way that's like no other. But again, there are layers of complexities with, with their issues. And I think um, that raising our awareness, especially for practitioners who work with adolescent youth, asking questions. They ask the girls questions. I've gone over and reviewed tons of assessment tools that include adding in those questions. When they're interviewing um a young male, they don't ask those questions because the interviewer may not feel comfortable asking those questions and may actually um, not ask because they don't want to make the, the boy feel uncomfortable. So, so for example, if you have a male interviewer, he's going to respect the, um, the, the, um, you know, the brother code from man to man to not ask the questions. And if you have a female interviewer, um, a male, you know, um, what would you call them? A male victim is not likely going to answer the questions to a female for the machismo that you raised earlier. Maybe I think so in it's a way, an issue. There's nobody that can ask those questions that they're likely to going to get honest responses from in this, these scenarios. Is that possible? 
It's a, no one's actually done any actual research on who's asking the questions from the boys' perspective. But when they did a services assessment in Seattle a few years ago, um, they just they didn't ask the kids. They just found out who was getting services for for what kinds of issues. And they were able to identify about a 14 percent um, point of that population that were boys being um, sexually exploited in some way, not necessarily human trafficking, but any kind of sexual abuse of a child is illegal. So we don't always have to have it come out as a human trafficking case. It's still against the law. Okay, so... I would imagine that there are some frustrations with your position, and I'm wondering if you feel like you can share with some of those to us, because as hopeful as we can paint the picture that we have a a community that has really come together to tackle this issue, and this is what I'm finding through doing this uh, series with all of you, is that Orange County is really quite top-notch in addressing a lot of these issues, but I also feel like maybe there's some ways that you can be supported more by the community. And um, maybe you can help me identify what some of those things are that um, that could help this do your job better and and see see you know better outcomes. Do we have about three or four more hours that we can talk? <laughs> yes, there are a lot of frustrations. Uh, I'm going to speak very um, broadly as far as some of the major frustrations that we face day in and day out. Um, when I talk about this population being the CSEC population, this is not just to the CSEC population. The, these would be my youth in general. I don't know what the CSEC population is. Commercially sexually exploited children. Okay. And we lo- use a lot of acronyms over in the juvenile mm-hmm. uh, world, so I apologize for that. But yes, so when we talk about my sexually exploited children, I also bring in all of my children because these are frustrations that are not just unique to this population. But one of the first things that I think about is our mental health services for our children here um, in Orange County in general. We are working closely with the healthcare agency, our county agency, to look into establishing facilities, therapeutic facilities here for our children right now we don't have them for our adolescents. I send my kids out of county and more often out of state to find adequate intensive therapeutic treatment for children because the answer can't be juvenile hall. It's not appropriate for a mentally ill child, but that is the answer that we have right now to try to keep a child safe. Because of the criteria for mental health holds and voluntary holds for children, which are very similar to that of an adult, under the Welfare and Institution Code, um, criteria being danger to its to oneself or others, that criteria then causes my kids who are very unstable, but perhaps not an immediate threat to themselves or others, basically turfed back to the juvenile justice system. And the answer is, well, I don't have a placement for those for those children. I don't have a therapeutic setting. So the next step is the answer I get from a lot of folks is, well, then you know, place them in juvenile hall because that's a secured facility and they will get treatment. Yes. And my my probation department does a phenomenal job with my mentally ill children. But there's many of my kids, they don't want institutionalized in juvenile hall. They don't want them incarcerated. They want therapeutic treatment for them elsewhere outside of the hall's walls. 
Um, so mental health is huge for us. Placement in general, um, and placement when you're talking about our sexually exploited children is even more significant. A safe housing and appropriate trained facility that knows how to work with these youth, whether those are boys or girls, we don't have sufficient housing. And I, I just want to make a comment on that because when I talk to people in the community and they're very glad and happy that we passed the CASE Act where 81% of Californians voted to recognize that these are kids, these kids are not perpetrators, they're victims. But the money didn't come with that law to, to place them in a safe, secure um residential care facility and the only thing that is safe and secure is is then our juvenile detention facility and that's not communicating the message to this child that they're not a perpetrator they're a victim so what is what is the reason why we don't have the funding for the housing? Does anybody have answers to that? Or is that the kind of thing that makes your, you know, hair stand on end? My hair <laughs> does stand on end because, again, we have the obligation for care and custody of these children. And we don't have the adequate facilities for their placement. And when we talk about, especially my uh, exploited children, sexually exploited children, they need to have folks who are properly trained and able to care for them, which means you can't just say, I'm going to go house this child at a shelter. Because the realistic things that we know about this population is they tend to run, that they have mental health issues just like anybody else. They have substance abuse issues. They have trust issues. They have dealt with tremendous trauma, whether that be chronic or acute, obviously, trauma. Um, So we need to have not only personnel and staff, but we need to have the appropriate therapeutic residential placement for them, whether that be a foster care home or a small group home. And again, that's a whole other topic with some of the recent legislation on congregate care and that we've moved away from congregate care. Um, But having said that, we have all types of issues that the community, as we make them aware, there's a lot of great people out there that really want to do good things for uh, children and families here in Orange County. Um, But we need to help them to understand how to do that. So where do we point those folks to doing it? Is it through the voting power of each individual voter, or is there a place they can volunteer, or a course of education they can take up and become trained as a volunteer? All of the above. I mean, you've actually hit a lot of the categories Mm -hmm. that, yes, there are many places. Um, Dr. Morgan Center, obviously, we have our Human Trafficking Task Force. So there are a lot of hubs that can get the information that they need to access. But also the strong push has to be made with our legislative chambers and our governor to understand the needs of the children in California, because that includes Orange County, obviously. And right now, um, I think everybody understands that these children are our future, but we are not seeing those kinds of resources. And when I say resources, I mean funding and our budget legislatively and from the governor that we need to have to support a system that can take care of my children. I cannot do the work if I can't have the courtrooms open. I can't do the work if I don't have the payment to be able to pay experienced, seasoned lawyers who know this work, who work with my children. This is a very technical area. And so we can't just have representation, whether that be 
the lawyers, the social workers, the probation officers who are brand new. These have got to be folks that are committed to this work, to this population, and have the experience behind it. We have many directives and mandates that tell us we should only have experienced judges and experienced lawyers that work with our children and family in the juvenile world. But the reality is, is if I can't pay them, if our budgets don't allow for that, then we're not going to be able to facilitate that mandate. Okay, so now I'm, I'm, I'm hearing the problem and I have that reaction that I think a lot of listeners do where there's a frustration that overwhelms a listener and they don't know what they can do to contribute. So what's one thing that some individual listening can do right now to help alleviate some of the pressures you're experiencing? Immediately call your legislator. Uh, whether that be your senator, your representative, your assemblyman, whoever is in your district, find out who it is. Make the phone call, write the letter, and say that you want the children taken care of, that the juvenile court, the juvenile system has to be provided for so that we can make the steps and continue with the progress and the collaboration that we're doing here. Because if we're strapped and we don't have the resources to do so, I won't be able to collaborate with all these wonderful justice partners. Are there local charities that we can point people to that assist and provide housing for um, for these ki- at-risk kids in the interim time while we're trying to find them help? You know, there are programs. Um, they have not met the kind of standard that we need for this population. And so, frankly, um, it, it's been disturbing because you can't have a, a secure facility um, so you can find a, a home and a placement in a nonprofit um, home for youth, but they can walk out of that. The, 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 the caretaker has no legal authority to restrain them and hold them. So it's safe. Nobody can come in, but they can, they can leave. And, and then there's another issue um, that back, remember, I was the task force administrator, and I would get people call and say, you know, Aunt Susie died. We talked about this. And we have this house, and there's three bedrooms, and we can put bunk beds in there and take six kids. And it's like, well, what kind of, of trauma-informed, licensed, credentialed caretakers do you have? What kind of insurance do you have? So the budget to, to um, run that kind of, of aftercare residential program is so much more than just having a house and, oh, we've got a van, so we'll have transportation. What you're saying is that you need to provide a secure location where they can't leave, and are you saying that there's legislation that's not supporting that right now, or is that did I misunderstand? You didn't misunderstand, and that's, that's actually an issue that's a very hot issue because, um, you know, secure detentions for non-delinquent youth, meaning Victims. We don't put victims in lockdown facilities. That's just, that's an obvious. And, and when you start talking about the type of care that these children need to have, um, what we learn is the relationships are more important than any fence that you could ever lock them down with. Having said that, though, there are going to be occasions when you have a child because of their issues, perhaps substance abuse, um, and they are committing criminal acts, that you may need to put them in a secure juvenile detention facility for a period of time until you can stabilize them and be able to get them transitioned into one of our non-secured uh, placements. 
we don't have the kind of placements, however, that Dr. Morgan's talking about right now that have the licensed, trained, experienced, trauma-informed facilitators. There's not enough of them, and there's just not, they're not where we need to have them right now. So, Dr. Morgan, um, are, part of your educational plan, is it to work with people that want to develop themselves into into these types of caretakers? Well, we, we are offering some online courses, and of course, at our Ensure Justice Conference, we always try to engage the community so they can begin to um, uh, create trust in the public-private sector, uh, particularly when I'm talking to wonderful nonprofits in the community that um, want to particularly serve this minor population, they become really frustrated with all of what they call the red tape. And yet that red tape is in place to protect the welfare of a child who doesn't have an adult advocate except the Honorable Maria Hernandez in Orange County. And so every bit of that red tape is there for that child's protection. And we have to meet those standards in order to have the the opportunity, the honor, actually, of caring for that child. And the resistance to meeting those standards and to lowering our expectations is something that we have uh, that conversation in our community all the time. Okay, so if you're just tuning in, this is Real People OC, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. And you can tune into our show here each and every Thursdays from 4 to 5. And we are at 88.9 FM in Irvine here at KUCI. I have the pleasure today having with me the Honorable Maria D. Hernandez. She is the presiding judge of the Juvenile Court, Superior Court of California in the County of Orange here. And also returning with us today is uh, Sandra Morgan. She's the executive director for the Global Center for Women and Justice at a Vanguard University. And we're having an important discussion, a continuing discussion that is on our series with human trafficking is January being Human Trafficking Month. Um, I guess that's kind of a loose term. I, <laughs> you're going to go good. with the technical month because I didn't write it down. Yikes. Anyway, um, I'm exposing our listeners to some of the frustrations we have, but I also want to hear some of the hope, too. So can we talk a little bit about some of those stories about where we've we've had some success and um, and where you feel like, you know, you get up every day and you want to do this again? I do. Um, it is a passion. It's a it's a love for the children here that we serve, and it's an honor, as Dr. Morgan says, it's it's clearly an honor to serve the needs of these children. You're talking the most vulnerable youth in our county, and and this is statewide, nationwide. But we here in Orange County, I'm really proud of many of the steps that we've taken. We work so well with our different. Uh, justice partners and stakeholders for the children here in Orange County. We are frustrated together at some of the deficiencies and the gaps that we have when we talk about some of the services that you and I were just talking about, placement, mental health services, uh, residential mental health services for my adolescent youth. But what I would like to say is we are making a movement. In fact, we just had a summit back in November that um, I was very privileged to help organize and actually um, organize with a team of incredible people. And we actually themed it Inspiring Hope, uh, which means a great deal because we want to inspire hope for the youth, but also for all of those who are working in the system for our youth and our families. Um, we were able to bring over 400 people to this summit in November at the training facility, the Sheriff's Department training facility. 
a perfect example. Sheriff Hutchins is one of the most supportive advocates for children and families in Orange County, and uh, she provided the venue to be able to have uh, some of the most dynamic leaders in Orange County. Uh, we had all the police chiefs. We had all the mayors. We had department heads of all the agencies here in Orange County to collectively get together and listen uh, to the needs, not only identifying great things that we've done in Orange County, but also, again, the gaps and the needs that we still have and what we need to do as far as awareness, education, intervention, and prevention. Um, we worked together with the chief of probation, Chief Sentman, on this. Um, I had the pleasure of working with his chief deputy, Chris Bieber, and actually organizing this. Uh, we actually brought two of the professors that I spoke of earlier in your show, Dr. Quas and Dr. Kaufman. Um, and I can tell you the dialogue that was occurring there during and since as far as the contacts um, have not only gone off the charts here in Orange County, but I have been contacted by other counties up and down the state. Um, this summit was attended, and our keynote speaker was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of California, Chief Justice Sakaue, who started off our morning with a very dynamic, compelling call to action on juvenile justice reform and what we need to do for our children and families for us to have a safe uh, community as well as having success with our families and children, which has all kinds of positive outcomes. Um, and one thing that she always talks about is this is not a change that will happen overnight. Um, we are actually touching the hearts of many people, and it's not going to be something that is an isolated uh, event like the summit. It's a journey. It's uh, progressive steps that all of us need to continue making. Um, but I was so pleased and impressed with the amount of dedication and people just at the summit uh, to the point where now they are looking to convene a state level uh, commercially sexually exploited children convening uh, in 2017. Some of it because of what was seen at our summit here in Orange County a couple months ago. Um, I've been, again, contacted by probation chiefs, uh, social service directors asking what else they can do and would like to be able to model some of the things that we've done in Orange County. So there's a lot of great work being done here as well. So I don't want to leave you with a thought that, my gosh, as frustrated as we can be over um, some of the issues I've spoken about, I am very proud to be a part of a very progressive county. And I think that a lot of your listeners, Kimberly, are very socially engaged in issues, and many of them may be professionals, so they may be um, social workers, and they may be CASA volunteers, right. and there there are training opportunities through the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force that are specific to particular child-serving um, professions. So... Did you come away with some specific marching orders from that summit, both of you, that you want to share with us? Actually, for me, I was very impressed to see such a heavy level of participation from um, Department of Education because, for me, I am so certain that if we could get a handle on, on substantive prevention, and I believe that happens best in the schools, and I won't steal her thunder because she is like um, your honor. You are the expert on the school-to-prison pipeline. 
And if we were able to engage every school teacher in every school to identify at risk, not so that we rescue these kids from this path before they ever become victims, that we do something to intervene. And prevention is, is where we have to begin directing a lot more of our attention. Well, so let's talk a little bit about that path to to the risk for the child. Um, you know, because it's a scary thing in society to just call CPS on somebody because you, you see an intact family that may be struggling. Um, it's not an easy thing to do. In fact, it's not even easy to get them to act on phone calls. Um, I've been involved in situations where, um, you know, a parent was very emotionally disturbed and distraught, lost her job. Um, and really needed some psychiatric care but wasn't getting it and and it was resulting in her inability to care for her son multiple people calling CPS but it wasn't it wasn't you know wasn't easy for them to remove the child from the home because you know he still has a loving mother she just wasn't able to cope um, let's talk a little bit about that so we can educate people on when to call and when not to call and that's important to understand. And you made a statement about, you know, removing that child. Well, one of the first things we want to do is preserve the integrity of the family. And if we can reach that family before it comes to the level of a need to remove, that's what we want to do. Because let's remember how traumatizing just the actual event of removing a child from an abusive home is. I can tell you those children who have been significantly abused still want to be with their abuser with their mother, their father, whoever that happens to be. And we also know from, again, the research that I've learned from Drs. Quas and Kaufman, the effects that that has not just in the moment, but for, for years to come on their cognitive development, their, their psychosocial development, um, having experienced that traumatic event of being removed and separated from their family. So I roll it back to what Dr. Morgan's talking about. We need to identify those families in the home and get them services before it rises to the level of a, a, a call out where removal is required. Um, with referring and making the calls, I tell people, call. Let the social service agency make that determination whether it will be evaluated out to send a social worker out on an immediate or an emergency call out or whether it's something they evaluate out with voluntary services. You know, we have a call center that they've done tremendous change with just in the last couple of years, few years. Um, and so our calls for service into that center are, are very large. The numbers I think are over 40,000 calls a year. Now, does that mean those are evaluated out to petitions for removal of a child? Absolutely not when you talk about the numbers I have in my system. But what I am saying is acknowledging and identifying red flags and cues. Something that Dr. Morgan just spoke to is frontline responders, my education professionals, my medical professionals, when they see the red flags to start making steps to intervene and offer services earlier so that we don't wait for that family to unravel. And the school is my passion. That's when we talk about that school to prison pipeline. If we can intervene and we can stop that cycle because we know connectivity to school is such an essential component for a successful outcome for a child, um, just like placement is, stability of placement, those are things that a lot of us just take for granted that oh, we don't have to worry about that. That child is in a home and that child's going to school. Well, we need to look at it a lot more closely and start acknowledging that when we start seeing a child 
you know, and as as low as kindergarten, missing school for two and three days, there's generally a, a red flag out there because most of your six and seven-year-olds aren't the truant that have been labeled, I don't want to go to school. It's a child that something's happening in the home that is preventing that child from getting to school. What is it? Is it because mom's having some issues like you're talking about? She's lost her job and she's having some psychiatric issues and she needs some help. We need to be able to identify that so that we can get those services so that child doesn't go down the line and then get labeled truant and then suspended, expelled, and then into the juvenile justice system and then unfortunately to the adult criminal justice system and off to prison. Um, that is a passion. That's a passion of our chief justice and I'm, and I'm happy to serve on her state committee which is keeping kids in school and out of the court system. Every bit of evidence-based practice and research will tell you, keep that child out of system involvement. The outcomes are far better. A child is arrested exponentially. The rate for being system involved goes up. So if we can intervene and work with our schools collectively to keep children in the classroom and not on suspensions and out on the streets, and unfortunately we know what happens when children are unsupervised out on the streets, everybody benefits. There are a lot of things that community members can do to get involved in the prevention that doesn't require um, raising money to open a residential care facility. People who become volunteers with CASA, the court-appointed special advocates that go with these kids through their process, that's an amazing, amazing opportunity. Um, After-school programs for kids who are going home to an empty house, maybe because a single mom is working two jobs. Those are, those are great ways to connect that child in the community instead of them going home and, and just playing video games. Relationships that they build there um, gives them a trusted adult to talk to about what's happening after school. There are just so many ways for us to be part of prevention. And The problem with that is it's not very glitzy. No one's going to write an article about it. And and we don't have a big story for the newspapers of a rescue and putting pimps in jail. But for that one child, it is a world of difference. I love that point because it's it's an intersection that uh, an, an intersection point that other people can imagine themselves participating in, and I guess that's what's important. You need more boots on the ground. Um, what is it? What does it take to be a member of CASA? Do you have to go through a special process, or there is a training component? Um, and again, when Dr. Morgan spoke of boys, um, we have CASAs um, that we need male CASAs. Uh, because we have lots of boys in our system and there aren't enough males. And and we want to see those positive role models for our boys. Um, So I'm always pushing when I do um, swearing-ins and things like that and ceremonies for the CASA events, you know, to to push out and and reach out for more male CASAs because I I think that's important uh, for those boys to have that positive role model in their lives. What kind of a time commitment is it for somebody? It, it certainly is something they could maybe add as a volunteer component to their life. They absolutely can. And what I would recommend, because I don't know all the specifics and I certainly don't want to misspeak, uh, but 
any of the websites, if you if you go to CASA, will uh, help you with volunteering. There is a training program that they do go through because it's really important that our CASAs understand our children that they're going to be working with, um, all of the confidentiality provisions, uh, and then the commitment that they're willing to make. Because it isn't just, you know, you're willing to do a couple hours a month. It, they are going to spend some hours with these children, and they need to know that these are children who have been abandoned and neglected and need that consistency. And so somebody who can commit to them and not leave them like so many others have in their lifetime. So you can do a search online for court-appointed court special advocates here Correct. in Orange County for Correct. a training program for that. Okay. Right. Wouldn't it be great if because of this show, we suddenly have an uptick in male volunteers for CASA? It would be awesome. And there, we also have our CSP, our, our community service providers, through the Human Trafficking Task Force um, that have advocates, especially, I know we're talking about human trafficking here this month, um, but they also reach out and do so much with us, CSP, as far as our peer courts and just being uh, partners for our youth and families here in Orange County. So if, if somebody wanted to do the Google search on CSP as well, um, mm -hmm. there are so many different opportunities opportunities for folks to offer their time. And I know there's so many people that have tremendous hearts and want to help and just don't know what they can do. Well, those are some starting points. And the OCHumanTrafficking.com website will give you links to all the partners in anti-trafficking in Orange County. And they have a monthly community meeting on the last Wednesday of the month. So the next meeting will be on Wednesday, January 27th. So you could go to OCHumanTrafficking.com and get all the information so that you can join that group. Okay. Um, so continuing on a little bit more, I'd like to hear more about the relationship that you have, um, Sandra Morgan, with um, the Honorable Judge. I want to hear a little bit about that because I think what I'm finding, especially as coming working with you, is um, how important the collaboration component is for this whole um, this whole thing that that is brewing here in Orange County to uh, serve the needs of our really tender youth. Well, um, actually, I was just in a meeting before this this radio show, and we were talking about strength finders, and one of my top five is connector. And so, if somebody says to me they wish they could do this, I don't wait. I'm like, well, you need to meet um, the judge. You meet, need to meet, meet the, the, the deputy probation officer. We just have to connect people with the opportunities that are right here. And, and so working with uh, Judge Hernandez has been an absolute joy because she, she must be, connector must be really high on her strength finders because uh, as soon as I say, well, you could do this, then she has, she chimes in and we can connect them with someone else. So there is a real sense of, of sharing information and finding resources together and um, cross-county communication. And, and so I, it's just so much fun to work with people who are so open-handed with their um, their roles, and there isn't room for egos in fighting commercially sexually exploited child sex trafficking. So um, that's why. 
It, it absolutely is. And I can remember uh, first meeting Dr. Morgan uh, at one of your Insure Justice Summits, I think was the first time I, I, I met you which becomes really important because we were identifying the need to break down silos and break down barriers because we do have so many uh, collaboratives that want to work together and yet the barriers are still present and we, we were working and are working within silos. And I do, I think we do a job that's remarkable you know, individually, but collectively our power is really a force to be reckoned with. And um, Dr. Morgan is is the leader of that force. And when she talked about cross-county lines, that's really important. I don't want to forget that, especially when we talk about trafficking, because the need, when we were just testifying before the uh, committee last week on human trafficking, the needs on how we talk to each other across county lines, because for instance, many of the the girls, I'll say because most of the children I do deal with are girls, um, are coming from out of county and out of state. So it's really important for me to be able to make contact with a sister county, whether that be Sacramento, Los Angeles, San Diego, if that child comes from their county, so that I can reach out and say, I have your child here. Do you have services that are going to be appropriate if I return her? What are you going to be able to do? Because it's not just a matter of, well, the allegations occurred here, so let's send her on back to where she lives. We need to confirm if I transfer that child back to the county of residence, is there going to be appropriate services and resources for her or him? Is it is it often the case that there's no adult family member to to claim them? Is that really where the frustration is? It does happen a lot, yes. Um, and that's where my dependency uh, system becomes involved when you, you have this child who's been out on the streets, sometimes for a short time, but sometimes, unfortunately, these, these children have been out there for months, if not years, in the game. And um, then you have to find a relative, obviously. I mean, we have code sections that provide for, of course, you want to return to family with relative placement having priority. But the first and foremost is, where is that child going to be safe? Um, So I I do have a wonderful agency that looks into relative placement, if we can locate. But what you're talking about is sometimes we have trouble locating family. And I can also tell you, and I'm sure Dr. Morgan will, a lot of times when you first meet these, these young folks, they're not very trusting of you. So they're not going to be very cooperative, which again is a culture shift for a lot of people to understand these children are victims, but they're also sometimes not very likable to start off with because of the trauma that they've been exposed to. Well, that and their teenagers. And yes. there's a lot of loving families don't like their teenagers either, right? I, I can say that's true of all four of mine. Um, they're delightful all now because they're all adults. But you're absolutely right. But then you put a layer of trauma, which is either you know neglect, abuse, being exploited out on the streets, um, Sometimes you have quite the firecracker coming into the courtroom to visit with. And I and I I have been really um, distressed as I talk to especially some young women who now are um, emerging as young adults. They left the life. Um, they've received some services, maybe not as much as they probably should have had. But when they face a difficult situation, their safety net is um, a community 
that exploited them. And they will go back to that community because that's what they know. And it defies logic. And I don't know, perhaps, Your Honor, your experience might be different. No, I think one of the saddest things is when you hear one of your kids say, but that's all I'm good at. That's all I know. Um, Because their self-esteem, and and let me just tell you, they're traffickers, um, exploit that. They know the vulnerable population to go after. They probably could have PhDs behind their names because of the psychological coercion that they utilize. I, I don't know how much you've talked about Romeo versus the gorilla pimps, but... Um, these traffickers will identify the very vulnerable population. They know this child has low self-esteem, that this child has been victimized or abused, and that they will come in and be their rescuer, isolate them. Um, it's textbook what they do. So, of course, these these children, then that's all they know. And all of a sudden they have this person who uh, personifies the love that they didn't have or so what they think is the love that they want and that they feel safe with because they don't know anything better. And then, of course, when you actually hear them say out loud, but it's all I'm good at because nobody has told them, no, you're better than that. You know, last week when we were talking to Sergeant Ravellis, we talked about the reason we call it commercial sexual exploitation of children is because it is a business. And like any business community, they share um, training tips. And I think one of the most shocking moments for me was when I read an article by a trafficker um, that exploited Maslow's hierarchy as a model for learning how to make more money off of um, trafficking victims. Oh, that's just really painful to listen to. That's that's difficult, especially to hear that they're organized enough to have training sessions with one another is pretty creepy. They write books. Um, oh, geez. We, we've had some pimps that have authored books and will actually spell it out there for you. And, and you're right, it's it's very disturbing. It's, it's probably one of the most disturbing things about, you know, communities in general is that there's always somebody like that in every community. Having, um, having, a, converse, having a conversation with a um, rehabilitated pimp, he tried to explain to me that it was never about hurting the girl. It was about the business and his business commitments. You mean, um, you know, just filling the orders, so to speak? Well, he was part of a of um, a gang family, um, commercially sexually exploited child venture, and so he had expectations on how much he produced. So his his logic was to see this through a business model, not through um, harmful practices for a child. Okay, so if you are just tuning in, well, you missed it. No, <laughs> we're drawing down on our time here. But um, this is Real People OC, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin, and we air each and every Thursday from 4 to 5 uh, p.m. in the afternoon on your drive home if you're lucky enough to leave early. And I've had the pleasure for the last uh, three weeks having Dr. Sandra Morgan with me. She is the executive director for the Global Center for Women and Justice at Vanguard University. And we have with us today the Honorable Maria D. Hernandez. She is the presiding judge um, over the um, the uh, juvenile court system here in Orange County. And um, 
Judge, I want to make sure, you know, when since we're drawing down our time, we have about four or five minutes left, and um, I know we need to get you on the road as well, too. Um, what is, if you were to say, like, the most important thing, if, if you get to your work day, what is that one thing you want to achieve in that day? When do you feel like, hey, I did it today. I, I, I hit that mark. I made... I made that contact. What is that one, you know, thing for you at the end of every day that you hope to get to? Because I would imagine you're swimming in a pool of a lot of difficult things to take take on every day. I don't know how you don't take it home with you, but um, let's talk a little bit about that. Some What's days are better than others uh, as far as being able not to take it home um, it, by virtue of the children that you're dealing with and the families and what they go through. Um we measure success in very different ways. Um, you know, outcome measurements for data are obviously extremely important to doing what's right. And you've heard me talk a lot about implementing evidence-based practices and uh, the and utilizing validated research. Sometimes what we do in my world, though, can't be measured in such a way and where we take the comfort in knowing that a child is safe um, you know, just having one of my kids come back into the courtroom, uh, you know, last week with a, a card just saying, uh, thank you. Uh, I would have never made it without you, that you believed in me. Um, to watch a young lady start to evolve or a young man who believes in himself and is able to leave the life behind. Those are all such tremendous successes that it makes it easy for me to do what I do, uh, to be able to to make just a small difference in one child's life. <clears throat> We've spent so much of our time talking about the victims of human trafficking, and we haven't spent a lot of time talking about the traffickers <laughs> themselves. Is there like a tsunami of them coming? I mean, I, I want to kind of understand that beast, and maybe at the end of the show <coughs> isn't the best time to do it, but I know we'll get into it a little bit next week. But um, can you help me understand what that feels like for you? Uh, it's frustrating because we see <coughs> traffickers coming at an earlier age that are groomed by the traffickers that are present. Uh, so when you see young young men and young women being groomed to be those pimps, um, it's disheartening <coughs> because I don't know if we, we if we would call it it's a deluge of them coming in, but you certainly are seeing, as Dr. Morgan spoke to the commercial aspect of it, that it's a business. Um, they have realized that well, I could only sell that tenth of a gram of coke one time and make my money, but I can sell her over and over and over. I'm sure uh, Sergeant Ravellis probably spoke to that and the fact that this is a, a criminal uh, venture that is. Um, one Un, the, you know, uh, uh, untapped renewable resources. Correct. Mm -hmm. um, so with that in mind, you know, it becomes something that draws uh, them to it. And unfortunately, again, when you have vulnerable young men or women who are easily influenced to become groomed as the trafficker. Um, so again, we can we can address those issues as well, especially when I see them in my juvenile setting. And I do have juveniles who've been charged on the flip side of the trafficking. And of course, when you're working in this field and you become so protective in that victim-centered approach, I have to remove myself and go, okay, what can I do with this young person who's in front of me um, who's charged with trafficking, pimping, and pandering? Are, are we to think that maybe they were a victim at some point? I, yes. That's that's really the question. 
you know, we have done the turn, turned what we used to do. We used to arrest and charge with juvenile prostitution. And now we're, we've taken on the victim-centered approach. And we've done a lot of study on um, brain development for understanding their risk. And yet we are prosecuting um, young men that are 18, 19, 20 years old, knowing that their brains aren't done till they're somewhere between 24 and 29, and I don't know, maybe older. But um, can we realistically start to consider that prevention might begin when um, some uh, when youth are in a community where maybe gangs are very prevalent and the girls are literally groomed to become prostitutes and the boys are groomed to become the pimps. So now am I going to get a lot of flack if I start thinking that that boy is also a victim at some point and if we could intervene, if we could do some prevention, if more of you men would volunteer to be a a male casa, would our courts not be um, incarcerating so many young men? Boy, that that's a mouthful, but it brings it back to a very simplistic approach, and it's something through Padros Unidos that uh, I was at a graduation ceremony, which is a group uh, empowering our parents of system-involved children. Um, successful families create successful communities. So it really goes back to the core of if we can reach out and help families become successful, meaning those young boys or girls who are going to be groomed, if we could reach them before that happens, or we could be successful with a family so that that child does not hit the streets as a runaway and fall vulnerable and victimized and exploited, it really goes back to the root value of our families. I have really enjoyed this discussion today, and we are just about out of time. It seems to me like the main point here, especially if you're a listener feeling like you want to do something, is the more people that we have that can go into the life of an at-risk youth and be that one person that they can trust and rely on. If you are um, a stable individual and you pass a background check, um, really important. Um, <laughs> um, not hard to do if you've led a you know a pretty normal life. Um, but if you are that individual, what a what a way to donate your time just to you know to save that one individual to be that one phone call that they make instead of you know an at risk phone call. I, you can't say it any better than that. Thank you. It just takes one. That's all it, it just is. takes one. Ladies, thank you so much. Um, I love doing this show for this reason because I get to sit across the table from extraordinary people like you doing extraordinary work. So thank you so much. And um, and we'll look forward to hearing more about your career. Um, the Honorable uh, Maria D. Hernandez, I'm excited to, the, to sit with you, a fellow anteater, and um, back with you again next week, Dr. Morgan. All right. I'm thank you for having me. It. Thank you.